Welcome back to another episode of the MedBullets Step 2 and 3 podcast. On today's episode, we cover the topic of hyperparathyroidism found under the endocrine section at medbullets.com. Let's begin with a clinical snapshot. A 55-year-old woman presents to the clinic for an annual well exam. She has no major complaints besides some constipation over the past week that she attributes to her change in diet. She denies any chest pain, fever, weight changes, abdominal pain, or palpitations. A routine laboratory exam demonstrates hypercalcemia. The clinical definition of hyperparathyroidism is a disorder characterized by the oversecretion of parathyroid hormone, or PTH, by one or more of the parathyroid glands. Hyperparathyroidism can be of primary, secondary, or tertiary causes. In terms of demographics, this disorder occurs in 0.1% of the population and 90% of cases result from a single adenoma. Risk factors for hyperparathyroidism include severe, prolonged calcium or vitamin D deficiency, menopause, neck radiation, and lithium use. Now for the pathogenesis. Parathyroid hormone leads to activation of osteoclasts, leading to increased calcium and phosphate reabsorption at the bone. It also leads to increased reabsorption of calcium in the distal convoluted tubule at the kidney and a stimulation of kidney 1-alpha-hydroxylase in the proximal convoluted tubule to increase calcitriol production. Primary hyperparathyroidism most commonly results from parathyroid adenoma or hyperplasia. It's associated with osteitis fibrosa cystica. High osteoclast activity at the bone results in cystic bone spaces with brown fibrous tissue. Osteitis fibrosa cystica commonly occurs at the jaw. Now for secondary hyperparathyroidism. This is due to secondary parathyroid hyperplasia as a result of low calcium absorption and or high phosphate levels. This condition is often in association with chronic renal disease, think hyperphosphatemia and hypovitaminosis D leading to hypocalcemia, and other conditions include severe calcium or vitamin D deficiency. Finally, we have tertiary hyperparathyroidism. This is due to dysregulation of parathyroid glands following chronic renal disease. In this case, the parathyroid glands will secrete PTH regardless of calcium levels. Next, I want to discuss some of the most commonly tested associated conditions of hyperparathyroidism. This list includes multiple endocrine neoplasia, or MEN1 and 2A, which causes primary hyperparathyroidism, chronic renal disease, which causes secondary and tertiary hyperparathyroidism, and renal osteodystrophy, which also causes secondary or tertiary hyperparathyroidism. Let's briefly cover the serum levels of calcium, phosphate, and PTH found in primary, secondary, and tertiary hyperparathyroidism. In primary hyperparathyroidism, serum calcium is increased, serum phosphate is decreased, and serum PTH is increased. In secondary hyperparathyroidism, serum calcium is either normal or decreased, serum phosphate is increased, and serum PTH is also increased. In tertiary hyperparathyroidism, all three, serum calcium, serum phosphate, and serum PTH, are all increased. Now let's move on to the presentation of hyperparathyroidism. Symptoms include weakness, kidney stones, bone pains, constipation, abdominal and flank pain, and depression. Although most commonly, the presentation of hyperparathyroidism is actually asymptomatic. You should also know that hyperparathyroidism is also an uncommon cause of secondary hypertension. On physical exam, you may note hypertension on vitals. Next, let's discuss the diagnostic studies helpful in diagnosing hyperparathyroidism. 
Patients often present asymptomatically, and the disease is often discovered through either routine blood tests or tests ordered for another condition. Helpful imaging includes bone mineral density test, computed tomography, radiograph, and Sestamibi parathyroid scan. The dual energy X-ray absorptiometry or DEXA scan is the most common test to measure bone mineral density. The DEXA allows for measurement of skeletal involvement and helps guide management. Next we have the CT. An abdominal CT may be indicated in the diagnosis of hyperparathyroidism to determine if kidney stones or other abnormalities are present. On radiograph, you may see cystic bone spaces known as salt and pepper, most common at the skull. You may also see loss of phalange bone mass with increased concavity. Finally, the Sestamibi parathyroid scan. This allows for visualization of the parathyroid glands. The scan is indicated if surgery is expected. Other helpful diagnostic studies include the serum calcium test, serum PTH, 24-hour urinary calcium, serum 25-hydroxyvitamin D levels, and genetic testing. The serum calcium test is the best initial test, and in the case of primary hyperparathyroidism, you'll see hypercalcemia, whereas in secondary or tertiary hyperparathyroidism, you would see hypocalcemia or normal calcemia. Serum PTH is another great initial test. Levels will be elevated in all forms of hyperparathyroidism. A 24-hour urinary calcium level is routinely measured in patients to assess risk of renal complications. Results may show hypercalciuria or normal calciuria. Serum 25-hydroxyvitamin D levels help in differentiating from familial hypocalciuric hypercalcemia. This level also helps guide management. Genetic testing may be indicated in patients suspected of having MEN1 or MEN2A. Differential diagnoses for hyperparathyroidism include perineoplastic syndrome and familial hypocalciuric hypercalcemia. In perineoplastic syndrome, associated with squamous cell cancer of the lung, a distinguishing factor is that serum PTH levels will be low due to negative feedback, which is different from hyperparathyroidism. In the case of familial hypocalciuric hypercalcemia, the distinguishing factor from hyperparathyroidism is that urine calcium will be low. All right, now for treatment. In acute hypercalcemia, you can treat with IV fluids and loop diuretics. In asymptomatic patients, first-line treatment is observation with follow-up. Second-line management includes surgical intervention indicated in select patients with abnormal studies indicating skeletal or renal damage. In symptomatic patients, like those with nephrolithiasis, first-line management includes parathyroid surgery, which is the only definitive therapy. Complications include post-operative hypocalcemia, which leads to numbness, tingling, and muscle cramps, and this is treated with IV calcium gluconate. Second-line management for the symptomatic patient is sinicalcet, indicated in patients who are unable to have surgery. This medication decreases PTH levels by sensitizing calcium-sensing receptors at the parathyroid gland. Finally, let's discuss some complications of hyperparathyroidism. Look out for peptic ulcer disease due to increased gastrin production stimulated by increased calcium, acute pancreatitis, which is due to increased lipase activity stimulated by increased calcium, and CNS dysfunction, which presents with anxiety, confusion, and coma. This can present as a result of metastatic calcification of the brain. Now that we've covered the high-yield test topics of hyperparathyroidism, let's try some practice questions. Question 1. 
A 33-year-old African-American woman presents to the emergency department due to diffuse pain and fatigue. The woman states that she feels like her bones and muscles diffusely ache. She has also experienced some abdominal pain and states that she has trouble focusing. The patient has a past medical history of sickle cell disease for which she takes hydroxyurea and kidney stones. Review of systems is notable for constipation and increased urination. Her temperature is 98.1 degrees Fahrenheit or 36.7 degrees Celsius. Blood pressure is 119 over 59 millimeters of mercury. Pulse is 130 per minute. Respirations are 16 and oxygen saturation is 98% on room air. Laboratory values are ordered and are currently pending. Which of the following is a side effect of definitive treatment for this patient? 1. Dilute urine. 2. Hyperglycemia. 3. Peaked T waves on ECG. 4. QT shortening on ECG. Or 5. Tetany. The correct answer is 5. Tetany. This patient is presenting with bone pain, abdominal pain, and trouble focusing, suggesting a diagnosis of hypercalcemia, which is most likely due to primary hyperparathyroidism. Definitive treatment is a parathyroidectomy, which can lead to hypocalcemia, presenting as tetany. Primary hyperparathyroidism is the most common cause of hypercalcemia and occurs secondary to increased secretion of parathyroid hormone. Hypercalcemia presents with bones, stones, moans, and groans, which corresponds to symptoms of bone pain, renal stones, abdominal pain, and psychiatric symptoms like trouble focusing. Patients should initially be stabilized with IV fluids as hypercalcemia can lead to diuresis. Definitive treatment is a parathyroidectomy which can subsequently lead to hungry bone syndrome, which is hypocalcemia secondary to decreased activity of PTH and increased deposition of calcium in the bones. Symptoms of hypocalcemia include tetany, paresthesias, and cardiac arrhythmias. All right, now for the incorrect answers. Answer one, dilute urine describes nephrogenic diabetes insipidus, which can occur secondary to hypercalcemia. Answer two, hyperglycemia is a side effect of corticosteroids, which would be administered in sarcoidosis, which can cause hypercalcemia. This is a less likely cause of hypercalcemia than is primary hyperparathyroidism. Answer three, peaked T waves on ECG describes hyperkalemia, which is associated with serum potassium levels rather than serum calcium levels. Answer four, QT shortening on ECG occurs in hypercalcemia. QT lengthening would be expected in hypocalcemia. Now for a bullet summary. The definitive treatment of primary hyperparathyroidism is a parathyroidectomy, which can subsequently cause hypocalcemia. All right, let's try another question. Question two. A 45-year-old woman presents to the primary care clinic with two months of fatigue. She constantly feels exhausted and has difficulty concentrating at work. She also complains of abdominal pain and has small bowel movements only once a week. She denies fevers, chills, or unintentional weight loss. She has a history of multiple prior kidney stones, which all passed with aggressive hydration. She takes docusate and polyethylene glycol daily. She has never smoked. The patient's temperature is 98.8 degrees Fahrenheit or 37.1 degrees Celsius, and respirations are 16 per minute. On physical exam, 
the patient appears comfortable but tired. She has mild, generalized tenderness to palpation of her abdomen without guarding or rebound. Laboratory results are as follows. Serum calcium is at 11.2 milligrams per deciliter, albumin is at 3.8 grams per deciliter, and parathyroid hormone level is 120 picograms per milliliter. The reference range here is 10 to 65 picograms per milliliter. Which additional physical exam finding is most likely present given this patient's underlying disease process? Is it one, hyperactive bowel sounds, two, hyperreflexia, three, hypertension, four, hypotension, or five, tachycardia? If you answered three, hypertension, you're correct. The presentation of gastrointestinal symptoms like abdominal pain and constipation and neuropsychiatric symptoms like fatigue and impaired concentration in a patient with an extensive history of kidney stones, hypercalcemia, and elevated PTH is indicative of primary hyperparathyroidism. Primary hyperparathyroidism is associated with hypertension. The signs and symptoms of primary hyperparathyroidism are largely mediated by PTH-dependent hypercalcemia and can be remembered by the mnemonic stones, bones, groans, thrones, and psychiatric overtones, which refer to nephrolithiasis, bone pain, abdominal pain or constipation, polyuria, and or neuropsychiatric manifestations like confusion or impaired concentration. Primary hyperparathyroidism is also closely associated with hypertension, although the mechanism remains unclear. One potential explanation is the direct effect of calcium on arterial smooth muscle contraction. However, curing primary hyperparathyroidism does not relieve the hypertension. Another complicating factor is that PTH is known to have an opposing vasodilatory effect on arterial smooth muscle. Primary hyperparathyroidism is also associated with multiple endocrine neoplasia, types 1 and 2A, in which the clinical finding of hypertension is also observed. Now for the incorrect answers. Answer 1. Hyperactive bowel sounds are expected in hypocalcemia, not hypercalcemia. Hypercalcemia causes reduced bowel motility, resulting in constipation and reduced bowel sounds. Answer 2. Hyperreflexia is a common finding in hypocalcemia, but not hypercalcemia. Calcium plays a role in the gating of sodium channels, which are expressed in nerve and muscle fibers. Inhibition of these sodium channels in hypercalcemia causes impaired depolarization, thus leading to hyporeflexia. Answer 4. Hypotension is observed in hypocalcemia, not hypercalcemia. In fact, refractory hypotension is a manifestation of severe hypocalcemia, which would also present with paresthesias, muscle cramps, seizures, long QT, and or Schwastek sign, which is the twitching of facial muscles upon percussion, or Trousseau sign, which is carpal spasm, observed after inflation of a blood pressure cuff. Finally, answer 5. Tachycardia is not typically caused by primary hyperparathyroidism or hypercalcemia. Primary hyperparathyroidism causes hypertension, which may lead to a reflex bradycardia. In addition, PTH may directly affect the sinus node to cause bradycardia via a mechanism that is not yet well understood. Now for a bullet summary. The signs and symptoms of primary hyperparathyroidism include hypertension and can be recalled using the mnemonic stones, bones, groans, thrones, and psychiatric overtones.
With that bullet summary, we wrap up today's discussion of hyperparathyroidism. Hopefully that was helpful. This is the MedBullets Step 2 and 3 podcast, a daily audio review session for MedBullets, the free learning and collaboration community for medical student education. Keep in mind that you can follow along with these podcast episodes by reviewing the topics directly on MedBullets.com. You can listen to these episodes on the MedBullets website or phone app while reading through the topic. If you've gotten any value from the MedBullets podcast thus far, we'd appreciate your consideration in leaving us a five-star rating and writing us a review on Apple Podcasts. It will help us spread the word and increase our discoverability tremendously. Thanks for tuning in. We'll see you all tomorrow right here on the MedBullets Step 2 and 3 podcast.